The following is a continuation in our series through the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. We hope you enjoy. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Tonight we have a guest speaker, Mr. Joshua Coleman, who is the RUF intern at Rice University, but you all probably know him as our senior pastor's son. So we're very glad that he is here with us. Joshua, thank you for coming on and sharing with us tonight. I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll get started. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. Lord, we do thank you for Joshua and his preparation, and we ask that you would bless him as he teaches us, Lord, and help us to better understand your word through his teaching. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Tree. I appreciate that. And Thanks so much, y'all. It's really it's a huge blessing to be here, to get to be here with y'all. Can I get volunteer to read the passage, Tree? Would you read that for me? Yeah. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 12. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols, practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon, war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Can you all hear me okay? Awesome. Okay. Well, great. It's good to be with you all here tonight as we look at this passage, a letter to the church in Pergamum. I just thought I would start off with just a quick story from when I was in high school, when I was in youth group here at Westminster, I was a sophomore in high school, and it was my second season of football ever, and I was playing football as a lineman. Through a strange, quirky turn of events, we had lots of injuries, and so I ended up playing right guard for Brazos Christian's offensive line. Not really big enough to play offensive line, but that's what we ended up having to do. And While I was not a great offensive lineman, I was scrappy, but I was pretty small. We had one guy who was a phenomenal offensive lineman. His name was Colby. And this guy, he played in college after high school. He was all state on offense and on defense all around. He was just a stud. Like he was so strong that when he would squat, the bar would actually bend on his shoulders. Like the iron bar would just like bobble when he would get to the top of his squats. This guy was just a monster. And so when I got moved to the line, I had never played line before. And in practice, one of the things that you have to do is you will practice getting down to your three-point stance and trying to drive each other as far as you can. And so I would have to do this drill against Colby. And he would just obliterate me. He would destroy me every time. It was not (laughs) close. And honestly, Colby was a very terrifying man to me. It was very scary for me as as a sophomore. You know, I probably weighed about 140, and I think he probably weighed about 265. 
it was very scary for me to try to go up against this guy. However, during the games, because we had so many injured players I was starting, during the games, Colby was right next to me. And instead of it being me against Colby, it was me and Colby against the other team. And so while in practice, Colby was terrifying to me, actually in the game, Colby gave me great confidence, right? Because I knew that he was immediately going to destroy whoever was in front of him. And so what I would do, this is kind of how I thought about it. I was like, well, every time you trip or like knock over the guy that you're blocking, you get what's called a pancake block and it's a big deal. And I knew Colby would always knock over his guy. So I would wait until Colby knocked over his guy. And then I would turn and drive my guy. So he would trip over the guy lying on the ground that Colby had destroyed. And so in that way, I actually got a lot of pancake blocks that year, even though I was a tiny lineman. My stats looked really good, but it was all because of Colby. It wasn't because of me. And so his victory actually became my victory because I was on his side and he was on my side. And so what I want you to get from that is actually Jesus is going to come to Pergamum. And what he's going to say to them is, you want to be on my side, right? You want to be on my side. If you're not on my side, you're against me. There's a line that he's drawing in the sand. And he's saying, if you try to conform with evil at all, if you start to kind of let evil creep in, if you start to make compromises with the culture, then that means that you're against me. And trust me, there is no more terrifying opponent to go to war with than Jesus. But on the flip side, if Jesus is on your side, then that gives you great confidence because there's no better protector. There's no better warrior to lead you into battle against darkness and against sin than Jesus himself. So the main point for tonight is that Jesus wins. So hold fast to the gospel Don't compromise with evil, and that means that you'll win too. So to give you some context, the church in Pergamum is a church that, like Ephesus, was going through a lot of false teaching. They were struggling with the Nicolaitans, who you may have heard of previously. The Nicolaitans were Gnostics. They kind of tried to take Greek philosophy and Christianity and combine them, and in doing that, they ended up not being Christian at all. So they're in the area, they're teaching, and there are some people among the church in Pergamum that are kind of starting to listen to them. And then also, like the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamum is actually going to be under great persecution as well. And so what Ephesus and Smyrna were dealing with, actually both of those things are going to be going on as attacks from Satan on the church of Pergamum. They're kind of getting hit with both false teaching and persecution. And so that's kind of some context for you. Pergamum was considered to be a city of temples. That was one of its names. It was full of temples to the Greek gods. It was full of temples to the Roman emperors. Actually, there was kind of a cult of the Roman emperors that was as a part of the government. So if you didn't worship the Greek emperor, I mean the Roman emperor, you could be persecuted for that. It was required in Pergamum that you would worship the Roman emperor. And so that made it very hard to be a Christian. Also, there's one particular temple that I want to draw to your attention. It's a temple to the god Ascaliopus. It's a weird name, but it was one of the bigger temples in the city of Pergamum. And it was a temple to this god whose iconography, his symbol was a snake. And so a lot of people think that that's why you'll see it in the passage. But Jesus refers to Pergamum as the place where Satan dwells, the place where Satan's throne dwells. That's likely because there was so much idolatry rampant in this city, and there were also these great idols of of snakes. So that's what it's like in Pergamum. 
Now, what we're going to do is we're just going to look at the seven things that every letter to a church has, and we're just kind of going to go through them. So first you have the identification of Christ. Can I get anyone to read for me just verse 12? Is there anyone uh, okay, go for it. And to the angel of the church in Pergamon write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Great. So that's how Jesus is described here in the letter to the church of Pergamum. He's the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. We typically think of Jesus as the lamb who was slain, and that is totally true. Jesus is the lamb. He's the sacrifice that we needed, right? He took our sins on himself at the cross, but he's also the lion of Judah, right? He's gracious, but he's also a judge. He's also a warrior. And so that's the way he's being described here. Actually, of all the books in the Bible, Revelation probably hits on the majesty of Jesus as judge, as warrior, as king, probably more than any other book. And that's the way that we see him described here to the church in Pergamum. So then jumping down, next we have the commendation. This is another thing that every letter to one of the churches has. And this is where Jesus is going to praise them for something they're doing well. So you'll see there in verse 13, Yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So the commendation for Pergamum is that they're actually a city under great persecution, and yet they haven't reneged on their faith. They haven't stopped believing in Jesus. And actually Antipas, one of their number, went to death for it because he wouldn't give up his faith uh, in Jesus. He actually dies a really brutal death. I won't tell you the details of it that we have from church history, but he's basically burned to death. And it was really a really brutal death, but he refused to let go of his faith in Jesus because he knew that Jesus was the most important thing and that his eternal life was held secure in Jesus. And so, Emma, could I get you to read from chapter one of Revelation, just verse four and five? Could you read mm-hmm. that for me? Yeah. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Awesome. Okay. And then I'm just going to reread for you what I read a second ago, but this is what Jesus says about Antipas. He says, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. And so I don't know if you caught that, but what Emma read, actually one of the titles of Jesus in Revelation 1 is that he is the faithful witness. And then what commendation does Jesus give to Antipas? He calls him a faithful witness, right? That's a big deal, right? That's a big honor. Jesus is saying Antipas, who held fast to the gospel, who would not quit on the gospel, and actually even died for it, he's a faithful witness. He's sharing his title of faithful witness with Antipas. That's a really big praise. That's a big commendation that he gives to the church in Pergamum is that they're facing persecution well. But now we're going to jump down to the rebuke, okay? And so even though they're facing persecution well, actually the false teaching, unlike Ephesus that did a good job of rooting out false teaching, some people in the church of Pergamum are beginning to be tripped up by the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Right. They're beginning to kind of conform to the Nicolaitans a little bit. And also the other things that he says are that they're kind of beginning to conform to the idolatrous culture around them. Could I get 
someone to read for me verse 14. Tree, would you mind reading that, verse 14? You're glad to. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Okay, so Balaam was a sorcerer, prophet kind of guy in Numbers, back in the book of Numbers, and he was against Israel, and he actually wanted to curse Israel, but God wouldn't let him. And so then what he did is he went back to Balak, his kind of commander, and said, it's actually a really crazy story. His donkey talks to him. It's that guy, Balaam. He tells Balak, his master, well, I actually am not allowed to curse Israel. But what we can do is we can try to get them to be sinful, and then maybe their God will stop upholding them. So we should try to actually put pressure on them to conform to our ways. And so that's what you start to see happening to the church in Pergamum now with the Nicolaitans and with the idolatrous culture around them is that they're starting to eat food sacrificed to idols. They're starting to do immoral things. And then they're also starting to believe wrong theology. They're starting to buy into this Nicolaitan idea that whatever you do with your body is fine. It's just the mind that matters. And so that's actually a big deal because as the church begins to conform to the world around it, it loses its ability to call people to Jesus. It loses its holiness. It loses its ability to call out sin for what it is. And so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that there are people there who are actually, they're completely losing the gospel. It's not that they're just mixing the gospel with the false teaching, because if you mix the gospel with the false teaching, it's completely not the gospel anymore. They've lost the gospel completely now. So that's the rebuke. And then we'll move on to the exhortation. And the exhortation, you'll see it. It's really short, but he just says in verse 16, therefore repent. So that's his exhortation to them. If the problem is you're beginning to fall for this false teaching, now what I need you to do then is repent. And what is repentance? It means that you turn away from sin, you turn away from something so that you can turn to something. So he's calling them to turn away from their sin. He's calling them to turn away from idolatry and false theology, false teaching, and move back towards the gospel of grace. So that's his exhortation to them. There's a quote by Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods. And I was really thinking about it today because I think for me, when I hear the words repent, it's really easy for me to start thinking of all the things that I've done wrong and start to feel a lot of shame because none of us are able to. But I especially know I'm not able to follow the law perfectly. And so as I feel that shame and as I try to repent, a lot of times I'll start beating myself up in my head. But I really love this quote because Tim Keller says, fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves, but joy-based repentance makes us hate our sin. And so Jesus isn't calling the church in Pergamum to beat themselves up and to shame themselves for their conformity to false teaching. No, he's not calling them to that. But what he is calling them to is to a joy-based repentance that sees Jesus as better, sees the grace of the gospel as better. And so hates the sin. And so that's true for us as well. There are many ways that we in America are tempted to conform to the culture. In many ways, we're very like Pergamum. And so there's lots of idolatry. There's lots of temptation to start to conform the way that we view marriage or the way that we view a man and a woman, the way that we view our freedom to be self-centered. And all of those things, we feel pressure to do that in this culture. But we actually have something so much better in Jesus. 
So we should repent. We should turn away from that so we can turn to the better thing. And that's the gospel. Next, you have the warning of judgment. And so this is actually a really stark warning that Jesus gives to the church in Pergamum because he says, if you don't turn away from this, if you don't stop conforming to the culture, I will war against you with the sword of my mouth, with my word. And so the sword is actually, he says, the sword is the word of God. And the word of God can be an instrument of our salvation, right? It can be an instrument of grace to us. But if we start to conform to the world, if we actually refuse to repent and just sin all the more and we don't actually turn to Jesus, then we're not really actually following him. And at that point, that sword, that word of God that would have been grace to us, now it actually becomes our destruction. It becomes something that judges us. And so that's a really stark warning. Jesus is saying, if you continue to conform to the culture, if you continue to follow in the idolatry of your neighbors, then you're going to be against me. You're going to be on the other side of the battle line. And that's a scary thing. You don't want to fight against Jesus. So now we move on from that. And this will just be kind of the final of the seven points. There's a promise that Jesus gives to those who overcome, right? To those who repent. He's not saying this promise is given to those who are perfect. He's saying this is the promise given to those who repent and rely on Jesus's grace. So for those that overcome, for those that rely on grace, they will be given three things. They'll be given hidden manna from God. They'll be given a white stone. And then lastly, they'll be given a new name. So each of these three things has a lot of symbolic weight to them. The first, the hidden manna is like, well, instead of eating food sacrificed to idols, instead of buying into idolatry, don't do that. Instead, eat the manna that I will provide you, right? God is promising that he will sustain his people. He will provide for his people. It's in direct conflict with what the church in Pergamum was doing. A lot of them were eating idolatrous food, and they were starting to kind of believe in the idolatry. And then the next is the white stone. There are two kind of symbolic meanings for this. One is if you were on trial and you were acquitted, so the judge said you're not guilty, then in Greece you would be given a white stone. So the white stone means you're not guilty. Also, if you were in the Olympic Games and you won an event, you were also given a white stone. So the white stone has a twofold meaning. First, it means you're not guilty. Your sins are forgiven. And second means now you're a victor. Now you're a conqueror. Now you're one who has overcome. And so Jesus is saying, for those that repent and rely on my grace, I'll take away your guilt and I'll make you a victor. And then lastly, you see that he says he will give them a new name. Right. And this is a new identity. What Jesus is saying here is that while once you were slaves to sin, while once you were enemies of God, now if you rely on me, if you repent, if you rely on my grace, you will be saved and you'll be treated as sons and daughters of the living God. You'll be sons and daughters of the king. That's a completely new identity. Instead of being the old self that was a slave to sin, you'll now be a prince or a princess. You'll be a son or daughter of the most high. And that's a huge deal because the word of the most high, the identity that he's giving you is secure. No matter what anyone else says, no matter if people make fun of you or persecute you for being a Christian, actually, if you have the smile and the favor of God, there's nothing else that can hurt you. There's nothing that ultimately has more weight than the favor of your heavenly father. I'll just end with this illustration of what it looks like to be loved by a father. This is a scene from one of my favorite movies. Have any of y'all seen The Lion King? Just show of hands. I'm assuming a lot of you have. Okay, good. 
So there's a scene in The Lion King that I really resonate with. And it's when Simba, the son of the king, has decided that he's going to go to the elephant graveyard. And the reason, the express reason he wants to do it is because he wants to prove to everybody that he's strong enough to be king. He wants to rely on his own strength. He wants to show everybody that he can do this. He's been expressly told by his dad, the king, don't go there. But he wants to show that he can. He and his friend Nala, he kind of drags her into it, and they go to this elephant graveyard. And at first it's going well, and Simba's really happy, feels really brave. And then all of a sudden these hyenas come out and start attacking them. So Simba and his friend Nala are running and scurrying through the bones of the elephants trying to escape, and eventually they get completely surrounded. And Simba, he realizes, you see it in his face, he realizes in that moment, there's no way out for him. There's no way that he's strong enough to defeat all these hyenas. And so he tries to be defiant. He tries to roar, and it doesn't come out as a roar. It's just this pitiful little, like, meow, basically. And then the second time he goes to roar, there is a roar, and it's a huge roar, and everyone is stunned. Even Simba, it shows his face, and he's stunned. He's like, did I do that? And then you see Mufasa, the father, the king, come flying out from the side, and he just starts tearing up all the hyenas. They're flying like bowling pins left and right. And his fury is stoked and he takes out everything in between him and his son. And when he gets to Simba and Nala, he completely has cowed all of the hyenas and they just, they slink away, right? Because the king is here, because the father is here. And what Mufasa says to Simba is, I was afraid I might lose you, right? And so that's a picture Right? That's a picture of the kind of love that empowers movement. That's what your God feels towards you. Right? That's what the cross was. The cross is a rescue mission. It's Jesus, the Lion of Judah, coming down from heaven to destroy darkness and the grave, our sin, our shame, all of that. He'll tear it to pieces because he's the Lion of Judah and he wants to save his people. And so if I could close with one idea, it's really this. Rely on Jesus. Put your hope in him because he is the Lion of Judah. And while he's not a tame lion, he's a fearsome lion. If he's on your side, that will give you great confidence. Because if Christ is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8 says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, more than conquerors through him who has loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor things in the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time tonight. As we look at your word, I just ask that you would press it deeply into our hearts and that you would give us a vision, a picture of the love that you have for us. That you would come, that you would die on a cross for us because you love us so much. That you would free us from slavery, that you would give us a new name, that you would provide for us that you would make us not guilty, and actually that you would allow us to share in your victory. Thank you, Father. Thank you for all the ways that you love us. And so as we break up into small groups and continue to discuss your word, ask that you would be with us through your spirit. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. We hope this has been helpful for you. Please keep an eye out for more audio upcoming from WYM.